Hello, boys and girls. This is Dr. John again, and I am so excited to be able to welcome you to another episode of the Children's Story Hour. And I have Auntie Sue here with me. Hello, Auntie Sue. Hello, Dr. John. I'm very happy to be here, and I'm looking forward to some of the stories today. I know we've got a very exciting storyteller who was a missionary for many years. That's right. His name is Pastor Gordon Lee. You know, boys and girls, Auntie Sue and I were missionaries once upon a time many years ago, and it was quite exciting, wasn't it, Auntie Sue? Yes, it was. We had lots of wild animals like cockroaches and mongooses and things like that around our place in Fiji, but Pastor Lee was a missionary when it was quite dangerous. And his stories are from Samoa and Cook Islands and Fiji and the Solomon Islands. And when he was young and when he started off as a missionary, there were still cannibals around and it was a very dangerous place on occasions. You know, Auntie Sue, it is so good that some of the boys and girls are actually sending us letters and some of them are coming through the post box and some are coming by email and some of them don't know who to write to. Can you give us some address details? Yes, you can write to us at Children's Story Hour, 3ABN Australia Radio, PO Box 752, Morissette 2264, New South Wales, Australia, or email at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also check us out at the radio page on 3ABN Australia website. The web address is www.3abnaustralia.org.au. I think it would be nice, Auntie Sue, if we had a little prayer before we started. Yes, thank you. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this story hour and that we can bring these wonderful stories to the children. Please help us take it to our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you, Auntie Sue. Okay, boys and girls, just sit around the radio, and here we go with our wonderful stories. Hi, girls and boys. Here's another story for you. Boys in a Bonfire. Can't we do something exciting tonight, said Ben. Yes, let's, said Lee. But what can we do? Everything's so boring around here. Let's have a bonfire, suggested another boy. Brilliant idea, said Ben, but where? In Lee's garden, said someone. How about it, Lee? asked Ben. Should be okay, said Lee. Grandma's going out tonight, but I'll have to sweep up some of the straw that's lying around, or we might set the house on fire. Tell you what, you sweep up the straw, the rest of us will bring the wood, said Ben. How does that sound? he asked the boys. Suits us fine, they said. We'll be round about nine o'clock. At seven o'clock that night, Lee took a brush and started to sweep his back garden. 
Needless to say, his grandma with whom he lived was very surprised. She had never known Lee to be that fond of work. What's going on, she asked. Why are you sweeping up the straw at this time of night? For the fun of it, said Lee. It's getting dark. I think you'd better come in, said Grandma. You'll do a better job in the morning when you can see. Oh, Gran, grumbled Lee. I feel like sweeping. Can't I sweep if I want to? Indoors, said Grandma. Put that broom away. Lee obeyed, but not for long. A few minutes later, Grandma went to a meeting at her church. She told Lee to stay indoors and read quietly. She would be home soon. Hardly had she left than Lee seized the brush and went on with his sweeping. At nine o'clock the other boys turned up, all carrying armfuls of wood which they had gathered from one place or another. Soon they had built a big bonfire and Lee got a thrill setting it alight. As the flames roared upwards the boys ran around the fire yelling wildly in their excitement. Let's play jumping the bonfire, cried someone. Right, said the others. Who'll be first? I will, I will, said one after another. Of course, everybody couldn't be first, so they decided to let Ben lead, with Lee bringing up the rear. Taking a long run, Ben jumped. Over he went, the others following. Your turn, Lee, they all cried as they watched him ready to jump. Lee ran and jumped, but he didn't make it to the other side. For some reason, Ben got the idea that he was to start to jump back over the fire. So just as Lee jumped, Ben jumped. The two boys met in the middle of the fire, crashing into one another. Down they went into the flames, while everybody screamed in fright. Ben managed to get out quickly. Poor Lee appeared to be stunned by the bump he got when he collided with Ben. He didn't seem to know what he was doing and rolled this way and that in the fire until a neighbour rushed up and dragged him out. Just then, Grandma returned. When she saw the fire, she guessed at once why Lee had been sweeping the garden earlier that evening. At first, she was very angry, but her anger melted when she saw how horribly burned poor Lee was. He was taken to hospital to have his burns dressed, and was kept in for several days. It was six months before Lee was well enough to go outdoors and play with his friends again, six months of pain and misery. When telling me this story, Lee said he learned two lessons that night. He will never try to deceive his grandma again or play with fire. boys and girls, it's Auntie Cecily. I'm glad you could join me again as we read from Libby and his bush friends. Today we're reading Chapter 4, Libby Settles In. I peeked into the box the following morning, but Libby was not there. As I searched through the boxes on the shelf on top of the wardrobe, my heart sank. We've lost Libby again, I said forlornly. Barry called from the other room. No, we haven't. Have a look in here. 
There was Libby, snuggled up fast asleep in one of Barry's empty shoe boxes on top of another wardrobe. Doesn't he look lovely? He looks so innocent. Innocent? Have a look here, was Barry's reply. Surveying the telltale trail of Libby's midnight explorations through the kitchen, dining room and study, I commented wryly. At least that explains why he's sleeping so soundly. It looks like he's had a busy night. As I rearranged the tablecloth that had been dragged off the dining room table, I added, It's clear we'll have to think of another way to manage Libby, or he's going to be quite a handful. He obviously doesn't believe in cleaning up after himself. That evening, Libby woke with a good appetite again. He was getting used to us now. In fact, every time he saw us, we seemed to have food in our hands that he liked. He quickly showed some distinct preferences, though. He preferred to run up Barry's arm and sit on his shoulder while I passed him slices of fresh red apple. He liked being high on Barry's shoulder. It was the ideal vantage point. He could see everything that was going on and he felt safe that far above the ground. We wanted to avoid a repeat of the mess we woke up to that morning, so we had to decide what to do with Libby during the night. When it was time for us to go to bed, we attempted to contain him in one room, but he did everything he could to get out. True to his name, Libby was once more demanding his liberty. What a racket he's making in the spare bedroom, I exclaimed. Wondering what to do next, I recalled the text in James 1.5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. So I asked God for wisdom to know what to do next. Barry had a suggestion to make. He survived the first night outside and didn't run away. Do you think we could risk putting the shoebox on the high shelf in the outside laundry? He could have his liberty and come back inside to us if he wants to. I think that might be the kindest thing to do, I agreed. We fixed up Libby's shoebox on the laundry shelf. We then took him outside and lifted him onto the shelf so he could see where we had put his box. We also placed some pieces of apple on the shelf to encourage him to stay in the laundry. Then we said goodnight to him and prayed we'd be able to find him next morning. Libby settled in very nicely on the high shelf in the open laundry on our back veranda. At the end of the shelf there was a round timber post which helped support a pergola covered with shade cloth. Libby could easily climb onto the top of the pergola. He liked to sit on top where he could nibble at grapes on the grapevine that wound around the post and reached up above the top of the pergola. From there it was only a small jump onto the roof of our house. Libby soon discovered that he could scamper across to the other side of the roof where the branches of a large gum tree overhung. All he had to do to get to the top of a gum tree was to step into the tree from the roof of the house. It was very easy for him to get some healthy possum food on his own whenever he felt like it. 
Settling in on the laundry shelf wasn't without incident, however. One night, he must have climbed out the wrong side of his box. Instead of stepping onto the high laundry shelf, he stepped into mid-air. From our bedroom, we heard a terrible loud crash and clatter. We dashed outside to see what calamity had befallen him. The high laundry shelf was empty. No Libby and no box. But then we noticed him on the lid of the washing machine, dazed and bewildered, struggling to regain his composure. The floor was strewn with Libby's rug, toy teddy and shoebox. Get out of the wrong side of the bed, I asked Libby as I picked him up and comforted him. We arranged his bedroom and put him back on the shelf beside his box. He didn't make the same mistake straight away, but the day came when we heard the same crash and clatter again. Libby was getting bigger and the box was too light for his heavier body. It was now easy to unbalance the box as he climbed in and out. It was clearly time to move him to more substantial sleeping quarters. Barry slung a hollow log under the pergola roof near the end of the laundry shelf and removed Libby's shoebox. Only once or twice did Libby sleep in the hollow log we provided for him. He preferred to sleep in a log of his own choosing, but he was still happy to hang around the laundry every evening. Understandably, food was an important part of Libby's life. He learned quickly that the kitchen was the main scene of action where food was concerned. His first port of call in the evening became the kitchen divide shelf. At first, Barry used to pick him up and put him on the high shelf. We offered him food there. Before long, he learned to find his own way up there by climbing the post at the end of the shelf. Libby was not especially good at waiting for food if he was hungry. If we didn't feed him a morsel quickly, he would soon be off the shelf, over the microwave, across the stove and to the sink where I kept a container for vegetable scraps. It took Libby only one night to work out how to get the lid off the vegetable scrap bowl. He bit at the lip of the lid until he was able to flick it part way off. He then moved it further by shoving his head into the bowl and nosing it out of the way. Libby then helped himself to the vegetable scraps. One of his favourite scraps was avocado. He went straight for the avocado skins and the large, slippery seed. Somehow, Libby managed to haul the seed out of the bowl onto the smooth kitchen bench. As he tried to hold it so he could bite off the remaining flesh, it would spin out of control. It was quite amusing watching Libby trying to hold the avocado seed steady so he could eat. It skated across the bench and smacked loudly onto the tiled floor. There'd be Libby hanging over the edge of the smooth kitchen bench, nearly falling off as he scanned the floor in search of his elusive avocado seed. We had a lot of fun watching his antics. Sometimes I'd help him onto the floor where he could continue his chase of the skittish avocado seed. When all the fun was over, I cleaned up the mess, not Libby. One night as Libby scooted over the microwave and across the stove, one of his paws accidentally bumped one of the hot plate knobs, 
turning one of the heater plates on to very hot. Thankfully, Libby was still raiding the vegetable scrap bowl when I walked into the kitchen and noticed the red-hot heater plate. Libby normally returned to the high kitchen divide shelf the same way that he came, across the stove. I quickly turned the stove off at the wall as well as at the stove. I picked Libby up to ensure he didn't run across the stove and burn himself severely. From that incident, we learned to turn the stove off at the wall when we had finished cooking. Libby, Barry and I had lessons to learn to ensure Libby settled in safely. By now, he had adopted us as his parents and felt quite secure and happy in our company. He came and went as he pleased and seemed completely at home, both inside our house and outside in the bush. It's story time, and this is Uncle Gordon to bring you another story from the South Pacific Islands. The Cook Islands has uh, 12 islands altogether, but they'd been a long time before they'd been between visits, and so I decided that I must get out and visit them. Some were a little closer. The southern group were closer to Rarotonga, so it was not difficult to get to them. But my only means of transport was a twin-mastered schooner owned by the one of the shopping uh, people there, and uh, McDonald's, McDonald's from New Zealand was the company that owned that ship. And it was a beautiful ship, a 90-foot long, but a sailing ship. And one time they were heading north to Manahiki, Rakahanga, Penryn and Pukapuka. Now these are a long, long way away from Rarotonga, but I took a passage on that to go up and visit these. They had not been visited, well, Manahiki, Rakahanga and Penrith had not been visited for, for, for six years. And they were so excited to know that I was coming. We were able to radio them and let them know, but no other visits had been paid. Well, I got on board this ship and uh, after I got my sea legs, everything was going fine. We sailed and it took us six days to sail from Rarotonga up to Manahiki. And then when we got to Manahiki, there's no harbour there. You just have to get off into a canoe and uh, have them row you ashore in a canoe and go over the reef. Now this can be a treacherous thing. You sort of sit in the canoe and they paddle up backwards while they're at the breaking point. Then all of a sudden they'll see the right wave and they'll heave-ho and they'll rush for the wave and you suddenly see the reef looking at you from its ragged edges and then suddenly the wave picks you up and it throws you right over inside the lagoon. It's quite an exciting time. And so I ended up inside the lagoon. And while I'm going there, they said, Pastor, are you going to show us any pictures tonight? I said, yes. Have you got any electricity? Yes, we've got a portable electricity uh, motor here. And I said, all right, tell them that we'll have some slides tonight. Well, the message went out uh, telling everybody everywhere what a wonderful time it was going to be. We'd have uh, films there. And so uh, the pastor of the church, or he was the layman of the church in charge of the church there, not of our church, but another church, he's running around and telling everybody that the pastor Lee from Cook Island uh, Adventist Church was coming there and he was going to show pictures that night. Nobody was to go. 
only the church members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he's running around telling everybody, well, he was the best advertising piece we ever had. He went into every home, every chair, every person. And, of course, they said, oh, pictures. We never see pictures here. We've got, we've got to go. And so when evening came and it was dark enough, they put a big sheet up between two coconut trees and uh, set the projector up and had the motor running, and everybody was there. Well, everybody except one man. And he's on the outskirts of it, yelling out that they should be back in their homes. And finally, when the picture started, he went silent. And we just watched the film through, and I showed a, a series on Daniel chapter 2. And everybody was happy about that. And I spent three or four days at Manahiki. Then I had to go to Puka Puka. Now, Puka Puka is an isolated area. It's a long ways west of Penryn, and it's closer to Samoa and Tonga than it is to Rarotonga, but it's part of Rarotongan, the Cook Islands, because they speak the Cook Island language, although they understand the Samoan language just as much. Well, when I got there, it was 15 years since they'd had a visit from a European Adventist minister, and they were so excited it was just so wonderful to be with those folk there. They were so excited to have part with us. They had young people who'd been learning their Pathfinder uh, badges and information. So we had a, a time of investiture while I was there. And uh, it was a great time for them. They wanted to, they'd been ma ma making up their own uniforms according to the patterns that were sent them. And we had a wonderful... But I was just in the midst of having discussions with them one afternoon when a message came from the captain, Captain Andy Thompson. Uh, he said, come aboard quickly. There's a cyclone bearing down on the, on the island of, of uh, uh, Puka Puka. So I got into canoe and went out, and by this time where the, the ship was, there were huge waves beating the reef. And we were able to get out to the, the boat, but very wet. And we went ashore, uh, went on board, and we headed off straight away. We went uh, on this trip, but it was fearfully rough. As a matter of fact, it was so rough that we, the boat was doing up and down more than it was going forward. And we were dependent on sails because we had no motor, just a little motor to help us when we were going into harbour. Well, I was sitting down at breakfast, and I was one, the only one with a captain who was well enough to eat so we were sitting down at breakfast when the mate put his head down into the cabin and yelled out something which I didn't understand. And the captain jumped out of his seat and raced up the stairs. I thought, oh, something's gone wrong. So I followed him. When I got up there, I could see these big green waves rearing up over the bow of the boat. And then they'd pour down over the top of the boat. And uh, feet and feet of water would pour over the top of the boat. Then I noticed that the mainsail was swaying backwards and forwards. The cable that ran down from the mainsail, from the top of the mainsail, which is about 90 feet up, down to the flying jib, was uh, broken, a steel cable. And uh, it was possible that that mast would be pulled out and uh, the boat split open. And so the captain was giving orders everywhere and he said to the mate, and put a rope on him, that was me. I said, what's that for? He said, well, if you go overboard, he said, we can pull you back in. Why? He said, well, you're going up with the first mate to finally get that cable 
and attach it to the main, the flying jib again and settle that mast down. Otherwise, it'll split this boat open. Well, climbing up that boat when it was almost at right angles to the waves, the water pouring over the top was extremely difficult. It took us two hours trying to catch that cable as it flung backwards and forwards in this huge sea. And uh, finally, we got it stabilised, pulled it tight, winched it into place, and went back again. I was soaking wet, but of course you don't get cold out there when you're soaking wet because it's always hot. We went into the cabin. The captain was very thankful. Andy Thompson was a, a man of much uh, understanding of the seas. He'd been a 40-year veteran of the South Pacific, and so we headed back. It took us nine days because everywhere that the hurricane went, it took us. It took us nine days to get back to Rotonga. We were driven by this huge cyclone. But the Lord finally brought us into harbour and my wife uh, and children, my two children, uh, were so happy to see me back there. And uh, it was strange for several days. I was walking with my feet going up high to try and find the ground. And every time I'd sit down, the table in front of me would be heaving backwards and forwards. I was still experiencing, and I think that went on for about three weeks. But I always remembered that experience where we could have been easily have dashed to pieces in that that little boat. Sure, it was 90 feet long and a high mast and big sails, but we weren't able to use the sails. But the Lord says they that go down to the seas in ships, they know the troubles, but he's with them. He says they'll come out in the end and, and give praise. Well, we did. I praise the Lord for it. And Andy Thompson, he said to me, he said, I always like you ministers on board. He said, I know we're safe if you are, you fellas are on board. And so it was a witness in many ways around those northern islands. While I was in the Cook Islands for five years, for five years I visited around all those northern islands. It was difficult, but it was a blessing. And the Lord will bless us as we put our hand to the plough and make it work. May the Lord bless you too. and girls, Sophie Lee here to read you another portion of the book, Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. The next thing Ellen knew, she awoke in a nearby store where the girls had carried her. Let me take you home with my horse and carriage, a kind man offered. Thank you, Ellen murmured weakly, but I'm afraid all this blood will stay in your carriage. I feel better now. I can walk. Elizabeth and the friend put their arms around Ellen, helping her to walk. Slowly they walked, step by step by step, but they hadn't gone very far when Ellen fell unconscious again. The girls carried her the rest of the way home. Ellen lay unconscious for one week, then two, then three long weeks. Doctors came but didn't know how to help Ellen. She would die, they whispered sadly as they left. Dear Lord, Ellen's mother prayed, please, please don't let my precious Ellen die. Everyone who sees her says she cannot live. Please, Heavenly Father, teach me how to care for her. God answered Mother Harmon's prayer. She had a cradle built big enough to fit Ellen. As she worked around the home, she kept rocking the cradle with her foot. She seemed to hear God saying, Keep Ellen's little body moving. Mother Harmon sang to Ellen. She talked to her even though Ellen never answered. Little Ellen just lay very still, not moving or speaking. Since she didn't eat for three weeks, she grew thinner and thinner. 
Mother massaged Ellen's legs and arms, trying to keep them warm. Finally, Ellen began to awaken. She opened her eyes and looked around. She didn't know why she was in bed, feeling so weak. She didn't know why she'd grown so thin. She didn't even remember being hit with the stone. Mama didn't wait for Ellen to remember anything. She hurried to the kitchen and brought her some warm milk. She fed it to Ellen with a teaspoon. Another month passed before Ellen could even raise her head. During that month, Mama told her all that had happened. The doctors said you would die, but I prayed to God and I asked him to help you since the doctors couldn't, and he did. Ellen slowly grew better. One day the door opened and in walked Father Harmon. He'd been gone for three months. Papa's home, Robert shouted. John, Sarah, Mary and Elizabeth rushed to greet him. He hugged them all, then looked around. Where's my Ellen with the rosy cheeks? he asked. Ellen stood leaning against the wall across the room, afraid to run to him like the others, afraid that she would fall down. When her own papa didn't recognise her, Ellen's heart nearly broke. Then she knew how much she had changed. Pushing the tears back, she tried to smile. Here she is, Papa, Elizabeth called, running to her twin side. In a moment, Ellen felt Papa's strong, tender arms holding her close. Ellen kept getting stronger. She wanted to go back to school. Mama and Papa knew she wasn't strong enough yet, so they asked her to wait. Month after month, she kept asking to go back to school. She wanted to catch up on her lessons and see her friends again. Finally, the day came. Ellen could hardly wait to get back to her school desk. But when she tried to read, the words looked all blurred and mixed up. When she tried to write, her hands trembled so badly she could hardly hold the pencil. Her writing looked like scratches. The teacher asked the girl who had thrown the stone to help Ellen write and to read her lessons to her. The girl seemed sorry she'd hurt Ellen so badly and did her best to help. Ellen never reminded her of what had happened or how badly she'd been hurt. While Ellen was trying so hard to study, sweat dripped from her forehead and she became dizzy and faint. Finally, the teacher had to say, Ellen, dear, you're too sick to be in school. Come back when you get stronger. Ellen kept asking to go back to school. There were so many things she wanted to learn. Several times she tried to return, but she had to quit again and again. Finally, Mama and Papa and her teacher told her she wouldn't be able to finish school, not even the fourth grade. Ellen had dreamed of growing up and becoming a teacher. Now it would never happen. She was very, very sad. Her friends, who always wanted to be with her when she was pretty and strong, soon forgot all about her. Ellen felt sad and lonely. She began to think more and more about Jesus. He'd suffered much more than she. When things got tough, his friends had all deserted him too. She spent a lot of time talking to Jesus. She felt his love and comfort. Soon he became her best friend. Tight while I set chopper skids down to see how hard the snow is. 
Yep, it's good. Good and firm. All right, Chopper, let's park right here, mate, down the tundra. The tundra? I haven't heard of a tundra before. What is it, Ranger Dan? Well, tundra, Mrs. Tammy, simply means a land with no trees. And this here tundra is what's known as a snowy tundra. And it's out here that we'll find the frozen chosen animals we're looking for today. It's so white. And it's so beautiful. Well, let's start looking for animals straight away, Ranger Dan. I can't wait to see what animals that live in the snow actually look like. Are they all white, Ranger Dan? Well, most of them are white, Mrs Tammy. But there's one other thing that all of the frozen chosen animals have in common. Well, what is that, Ranger Dan? Well, look around you, Mrs Tammy. Can you see any animals? No. That's right. That's because they're all good at camouflage. Camouflage? Yes, camouflage. Camouflage is just a big word that means blending in with the things around you. It's a special gift that God has given to many animals, and especially the Arctic animals. Make them hard for us and anything else to see. That makes sure that they can stay safe. So we'll have to look very carefully if we're going to see any animals today, Mrs Tammy. Oh, uh, I hope I don't uh, step on any of them, Ranger Dan. I think you should be okay, Mrs Tammy. Right, now let's stand very still, focus our eyes and scan the tundra. See if we can detect any movement out there. Okay, Ranger Dan. I'm looking. Oh, yes, I see something. See it, Mrs Tammy? Over there, sitting on the tundra. It just blinked and I saw the yellow of its eyes. Oh, yes. What is it, Ranger Dan? It looks to me like we've found ourselves a snowy owl, Mrs Tammy. They spend most of their days sitting here on the tundra. But don't be fooled. They have really good eyesight and they can detect even the tiniest bit of movement when they're flying way up high in the sky. So we'll have to stay very still so we don't frighten him away. They remind me of Jesus too, Ranger Dan, because wherever we are, whatever we are doing, he can see us. And because he can see us, he knows just what we need and can keep us safe. That's right, Mrs Tammy. Jesus certainly has his eye on all of us. Wherever you are, God can see you. Wherever you go, he will know. He's looking down with love from heaven up above. And he's got his eye on you. And he knows who, who you are. Yes, who, who you are. From him you're never far, cause he knows just right where you are. There's no place you can be where Jesus cannot see. see you wherever you go he will know he's looking down with love from heaven up above and he's got his eye on you just like the snowy owl when he is on the prowl can spot the tiniest morsel from the air from way up in the sky looking with his great big eye Jesus can see you anywhere. 
see you wherever you go. He will know he's looking down with love from heaven up above, and he's got his eye on you from way up in the sky. Jesus has his eye on all his little children here on earth. He really loves us so and makes sure that we won't go anywhere without him by our side. Wherever you are, God can see you. Wherever you go, he will know he's looking down with love from heaven up above. Who you are, yes, who, who you are From him you're never far Cause he knows just right where you are There's no place you can be Where Jesus cannot see Wherever you are God can see you Wherever you go He will know He's looking down with love From heaven up above Hello girls and boys, I'm Auntie Nat and I'm so glad you've come back to read the Bible with me. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Are you ready? Today we're going to read out of Luke chapter 2 and we're starting in verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And boys and girls, I'll just let you know that these shepherds who were out in the fields, this is the same area that David, as a boy, kept his sheep. Let's continue in verse 9. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Now, boys and girls, this is warning the shepherds of Christ's humility. The angel was preparing them for how they would find baby Jesus. Baby Jesus came to a humble family, a poor family, and this is the angel's way of preparing them to what they will find. Verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. So it was when the angel had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. 
Now, a manger, boys and girls, is a feed trough which you find in stables. And uh, Lord Jesus Christ, who came from the heavenly realm, is actually lying in an animal's trough. What Jesus did for us is just amazing. Let's go to 17. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. This is a really special verse, boys and girls. And the same thing happens a bit further along, and we're going to talk about that in another reading. But you just remember this verse in verse 19, and we'll talk about it later. Let's read verse 20. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, as it was told them. Boys and girls, these shepherds couldn't keep the good news to themselves. Do we keep the good news of Jesus to ourselves? Or do we, like the shepherds, go out and share the good news? Have a think about that. I look forward to reading to you again next week. Boys and girls, Dr. John back here with some more stories by Eric B. Hare, the great storyteller and missionary in Burma 100 years ago. And this chapter from his book, Jungle Stories, is called Animals in Burma. Now, I must tell you just a little about some of the animals we have here in Burma. The first you will see as you land are horses and bullocks. These are not so different from those we have at home, except that the cattle have a lump on their shoulders, a great big hump. The first time you take a ride on the train into the country, you will see the water buffaloes. They are bigger than bullocks and have huge horns. They are the dirtiest things next to pigs I have ever seen. Their favorite pastime is wallowing in mud, and the longer they can stay in it, the more they can take away with them, the happier they seem. As you get farther out into the jungle, there are all kinds of deer, wild cattle, tigers, and elephants, and in some places, leopards, rhinoceroses, and bears. Thousands of elephants are caught and tamed and then used for timber work. They can pull and push enormous loads, and in the timber mills they are really expert at stacking and sorting timber. The drivers sit on their heads, and with certain words and pokes with a hook stick, they can make them work, kneel down, blow water all over themselves, or salute. It is quite common to see from the mission house herds of from 10 to 15 of these majestic monsters coming down to the river for their bath after their hard day's work of dragging logs in the jungle. There are many kinds of wild cats who steal the chickens and so many snakes, centipedes, 
spiders and scorpions that you can't remember them all. Some scorpions are as large as your hand and have a tail as thick as your finger. They are very poisonous, and many deaths are caused every year from their stings. A few weeks ago, a small one bit Joshua, the little baby of one of our teachers, and for three weeks we didn't think he would live. The poison seemed to travel all over the body, causing terrible swelling and pain. And I must not forget to tell you about the monkeys. We have all kinds of monkeys here in Burma. Big monkeys, little monkeys, monkeys with long tails, monkeys with no tails, monkeys with white faces, and monkeys with black faces. But nevertheless, all monkeys. Did you ever hear how the monkeys got their small waists? An old Karen story. Karen is part of Burma. An old Karen story says that long, long ago, the great father of all the monkeys longed very much to ride on the back of a tiger. This is not a real story. This is a legend. One day, he had an opportunity for a tiger who was in difficulty over a certain court case, came through the forest looking for a capable lawyer. The monkey agreed to be his lawyer and assured him of success on condition that he would tie him securely on his back and take him to the court and back again, for his leg was sore and otherwise he would not be able to go so far. Now the monkey's leg wasn't really sore, he only wanted the honour of a ride on the tiger's back. But as the tiger was in great trouble, he readily agreed to the monkey's terms. Tying him on securely, the tiger trotted off and was soon near the court where, creeping up cautiously, he heard the judge giving orders to catch the tiger as soon as he put in an appearance, whereupon he turned and fled for his life racing through the thickest jungle the poor monkey tied on his back caught and tangled in every thicket and was so securely tied that he was dragged through it all and on account of the terrible strain he had a little waste ever since of course you mustn't think these stories are true they are only what the people say however we have had several monkeys and I must tell you about one old that is the Karen name for monkey. He was brought to the dispensary to pay for a bottle of medicine and we took a liking to him right away. It was soon evident that this little monkey could think of more mischief in a day than 100 little boys could do in a month. And becoming expert in breaking his ropes and chains and even biting his way through his wire netting cage, he gave us frequent demonstrations of his ability. In one jump, he could smash two lamps, spill the flower bars, then hopping up onto the writing table would grab some paper and scamper up to the rafter to tear it up. Then like a dart, he would fly to the fowl yard and frightening the hens off their nests, he would cram two eggs into his pockets. You know what his pockets were? One on each side of his mouth. Put one under his arm and one in his hand, and away he would go to the nearest tree to eat them. He just loves children and never gets tired of playing with them. 
One Sabbath, we heard a yell from the house where baby Barnabas was left to sleep while his father and mother went to church. They both ran right away to see what the matter was and found Ta'u sitting on the rafters above the baby's bed, looking quite pleased with himself. He had chewed his way through his cage and in some way had been able to explore this house first. He found the poor baby all alone. Where was his mother? Poor baby, it must be hungry, thought Ta'u. It might not have anything to eat all day, for all he knew, so he went downstairs to see if he couldn't find something for the baby to eat. He soon discovered a big basket of rice and made several trips carrying his hands full to the baby and pushing it into its mouth and eyes and ears and nose. That's not the way you eat rice. Finishing off with bringing it in a nice drink of water which he spilled all over the baby. No wonder baby Barnabas was yelling. Another time we were all in church when the rascal biting his way through his cage again thought he would like to come to church too. His joy knew no bounds when he arrived and found a pair of wooden slippers on the porch which had been left there by someone inside. Before we could realize what was going to happen, Ta'u came strutting down the centre aisle in boots, standing up with one hand scratching his head and his long tail dragging behind. Yet for all his mischievousness, we all love Ta'u and the children insist on sharing their lumps of native sugar with him and like to catch spiders and grasshoppers for his supper. Special thanks go to Pacific Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read on air a selection from Jungle Stories, written by Eric B. Hare, and Ellen, the Girl with Two Angels, written by Mabel R. Miller. Also, thanks goes to Stanbra Press for giving 3ABN Australia Radio permission to read a selection of stories from the set of books called Uncle Arthur's Best Bedtime Stories. And thanks to Remnant Publications for permission to read the Remnant Young Scholar Study Bible on air. We would also like to thank Daniel and Tammy Cinzio for allowing us to play their CD, Frozen Chosen, on air. For any other information about the Children's Story Hour, you can contact us at radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au.
helps me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gate to open wide. He will wash away my sin, let his little child come in. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Jesus, take this heart of mine, make it pure and holy thine. On the cross you died for me, I will love and live for thee. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so.
You heard Gavin Chitalia and the children singing Jesus Loves Me and Oh How I Love Jesus. And before that, Auntie Cecily sang God Will Take Care of You. Well, boys and girls, we have come to the end of another Children's Story Hour. We thank you for joining us and we hope that you have enjoyed the program. On behalf of Auntie Sue, I would like to say goodbye, God bless you, and we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Children's Story Hour.